Lesson 8, Part 2 of Elements of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Elements of Geology by William Rushenberger. Lesson 8, Part 2 effects attributable to upheaval and subsidence, shell deposits and raised beaches, submarine forests, tracks of quadrupeds and birds, dislocation of strata, faults, crateriform arrangement of strata, valleys of elevation, upheaval without dislocation, Distortion of strata. Origin of valleys. Valleys from dislocation, from subsidence, from folding or plating, from erosion or denudation. Origin of caverns. At whatever height we may find fluviatile deposits on the surface of the globe, there is nothing to excite astonishment for we readily conceive that lakes could have existed at all heights on continents, and that, after their waters flowed away, their deposits remained dry on the soil. But we find also marine deposits at all heights, in very extensive beds, and, at first sight, it is not so easy to account for them. It is evident that such deposits could have been formed only under waters of the sea, and, as they are now found thousands of yards above the present level of the ocean, we must admit one of two things. Either that the water was elevated above these points for a sufficiently long time to form thick beds there, or that these deposits were raised up from the bottom of the sea to the height we now find them. Nothing in the phenomena of the present time warrants a belief that the sea, which has not changed its level within the time of history, could have been so elevated, long enough to form considerable deposits. The universal deluge of the Holy Scriptures was a catastrophe of short duration, and therefore could not have produced the immense deposits referred to, which, everything leads us to believe, were formed slowly. Besides, this catastrophe is comparatively of modern date, and must be referred to the last modification of the surface. Now, all the deposits of shells of which we speak were long anterior and were independent of facts belonging to the history of the human race. Nothing informs us what became of the excess of water, a greater or less volume than now exists, above the present level, without having recourse to divine interference which must have been frequent in ancient times, to cause these waters to appear or disappear a great many times, 
and even suspend the action of the laws of equilibrium. In fact, very often deposits of shells, seen here and there at a great height, are not found on corresponding summits, and are represented on the contrary with all their characters thousands of yards lower down. Hence we must suppose the waters were considerably elevated on the first of these points, and remain low on the other, which is absurd, or we must admit that the same animals could live in one place near the surface of the water, and in another at immense depths, which is contrary to all observation. Therefore, the only reasonable supposition left is that of upheaval, an idea supported at least on positive events which have taken place in our own times, and which are, doubtlessly, not the only ones which have been manifest on the surface of the globe. If an upheaving force could suddenly elevate 200 leagues of the coast of Chile, spreading as far as the islands of Juan Fernandez, if the same effect were slowly produced in all the gulf of Bothnia in Sweden and in Finland over a surface of not less extent, we may comprehend how vast countries might have been elevated anywhere. The enormous liquefied mass forming the interior of the globe, oscillating from side to side beneath its thin crust, could emboss it in every direction, and nothing more would be required to raise continents out of the sea, and vary the slight relief in all manners. And let not such effects excite alarm, because they appear gigantic. We judge them to be so because we compare them with our feeble powers, for they are nothing compared to the globe itself. What are the 25,660 feet in the height of Himalaya, the highest mountain in the world, and the 24,580 feet depth, the deepest soundings in the midst of the sea, compared with the 19,685,500 feet measured by the mean radius of the earth. And notwithstanding such eminences or depths, the sum of which is less than 0.5 of an inch to the yard, are rarities on our planet, whose inequalities are not even comparable to the unperceivable irregularities which are formed in our manufactories on moulded glass or metals, which nevertheless pass unnoticed. If to these reflections we add our knowledge of the immense force often exerted from the interior towards the exterior, none of these phenomena will astonish us shell deposits and upheaval, or raised beaches. Parts of soil upheaved above the level of the sea are characterised on the surface of exposed rocks by the presence of various shells that live, ordinarily, attached on a level with the water, such as barnacles, mussels, etc., 
or by that of some small deposits of shells identical with those daily formed at the bottom of neighbouring seas. Now, on examining the hills near the coast of Chile, there has been found on the plateau, which succeed each other in terraces, the sides of which are parallel to the present shores, shells similar to those that have been left dry in our day, and which are still attached to rocks, as well as shelly deposits, which contain the same organic remains as those now forming in the Pacific Ocean. Is it not most probable that these deposits are indications of successive upheavals similar to those which have recently taken place? This inference is sustained by observations made on the coast of Peru near Lima, in the island of San Lorenzo, where, thirty yards above the level of the sea, deposits have been found which contain woven osier, portions of cotton thread, etc., clearly showing that the deposits in question were formed since the existence of man in those countries, as the level of seas has not changed since history began, it is only by upheaval they could be brought to light. That the coast of Sweden has been uplifted slowly has been established by the most exact observations. In digging a canal near Stockholm, in the midst of beds of sand, clay and marl, filled with shells similar to those that now live in the Baltic, there were found the remains of very ancient vessels. All this country, which must have been at some period under water, and in which some ships were wrecked, has been upheaved since the presence of man, the level of the ocean being invariable. It is therefore evident that the shelly deposit of Uddevalla, in which organic remains of the Baltic are found, seventy yards above the level of the sea, and in which Monsieur Brongniar found Bellany attached to rocks, as they are on the present coast, is a fact of elevation. Similar deposits and evidence of elevation are met in other parts of the world. The upheaval and subsidence of the Temple of Serapi has been already mentioned. In thus admitting that very extensive deposits, formed of shells that are now living in the sea, have been evidently upheaved to greater or less heights, is it not therefore exceedingly probable that the same is true of all the rest? Why should this not be true in regard to the neighbourhood of London and Paris, to that of the plains of Gascony, Austria, Hungary, Poland, etc.? All the shells found in those places are not similar to those in the present seas, but there exists a considerable quantity of them, and moreover, their preservation is so perfect in many places, that they seem to have been recently buried. If we admit the fact of elevation for these deposits, can we refuse it to the chalk that everywhere envelops them, forming not only the Jura, 
but a great part of the calcareous mountains of France, or to any shell deposits, the organic debris of which bear witness to their marine origin. Subsidence of various deposits. Upheaval has been shown. Subsidence is not less demonstrable. At many points on the coasts of France and England may be seen at low tide very extensive deposits of plants similar to those now living in those countries and which appear to have grown on the spot where they are found for the roots are seen attached to the soil. These deposits rest on earthy matter covered with leaves heaped upon each other or sunk in a peat-like substance. In these places have been found birch trees, chestnuts, oaks and fir trees, sometimes scarcely altered, species of deer similar to those met in peat bogs, the whole covered by the argillaceous deposits, which contain freshwater shells. These submarine forests, as they are called, could have grown only on a soil more or less elevated above the sea, and as they are now found beneath it, and are not uncovered, except in unusually low tides, the earth must have sunk after a period of vegetation. The dirt bed of Portland shows the existence of a vegetable earth or mould of a soil nearly dry, resting on marine deposits. This bed has been covered by a very thick deposit of lacustrine limestone, and the whole passes under the green sand which precedes the chalk, and which is of marine formation. It is clear, therefore, that there was in those places a certain upheaval of the inferior marine limestone on which terrestrial plants grew, that subsequently a lake or a deep estuary was formed in which beds of limestone, sand and clay were deposited, filled with fluviatile shells, the entire mass being sometimes from 200 to 500 yards in thickness. A subsequent upheaval must have lifted the whole to its present level. Around the Paris Basin, the deposit of marine limestone, worked for building stone, must have been at first uplifted at various points above the sea to be covered by a freshwater lake in which the lacustrine deposits were formed, and among them the plaster of Paris. Subsequently, it must have been sunk beneath the sea to be covered by a marine formation and again uplifted to be covered by a second freshwater formation. Hundreds of facts of this kind might be cited, but we will only notice the impressions of feet and tracks of certain quadrupeds found at Hesburgh near Hildborghausen in Saxony, on the faces of certain beds of sandstone, and the impressions of the feet of various birds found in the valley of the Connecticut in the United States 
in the same deposits. These impressions show that the soil was in a degree soft, although partly dry, which is proved by the ridges it presents, and that it was out of water. The sedimentary bed on which these animals walked is now covered by another, which is moulded on these tracks, and afterwards by considerable deposits of the same matter, which could be formed only under water. It follows, therefore, that the soil, first uplifted enough to enable terrestrial animals to walk on it, was subsequently sunk to receive all those sedimentary deposits, and afterwards was again upheaved to its present position. Change of position and dislocation of strata, attributable to upheaval. It has been already stated that sand and shells are deposited under water in horizontal beds. Indeed, we frequently find them in this position on the surface, even over extensive spaces, and we then find flattened pebbles, valves of oysters, and other shells lying flat, and terriculated shells lying on one side, and everything confirming the idea of a slow formation by the weight of these substances. But it sometimes happens that we see deposits more or less inclined in certain parts of their extent, raised up almost to a vertical position, and sometimes entirely overturned. They still preserve, however, all the characters which show they were at first horizontal, for the debris of shells and pebbles they contain are still found arranged parallelly to the planes of the beds. Besides, there are deposits which contain geodes of agate, in which are found stalactites with the axis more or less inclined, which is directly opposite to the manner of production of these substances. Consequently, these deposits could not have been formed in the position we find them, for, on the one hand, the debris of shells and pebbles would have rolled over to be surely balanced, or fallen to the foot of the talus. On the other, the stalactites would have formed in a vertical position. This last observation particularly shows that the beds were at first horizontal, and that their position has been changed subsequently to their formation. This is one of the great geological phenomena we seek to explain. The effects of earthquakes and those of volcanic phenomena will serve as points of comparison in our inquiry. On one hand, the crevices produced in the soil at the time to a greater or less depth can only be the effect of upheaval, for the separation of parts does not result here from drying, nor from cooling, which would produce a retreating of the whole mass. It is remarked in the neighbourhood of cracks that the soil is no longer on the same plane as the rest of the country, that it is more or less arched, 
and often one part is more elevated than another. Now, if the soil have been uplifted, it must follow that the internal beds have been disturbed in their position. Consequently, when in a formation of horizontal strata, a crack is made in a straight line, the beds must be inclined on both sides through their length, like two slopes of a roof. When several divergent cracks are formed, the beds ought to incline symmetrically around the axis of elevation. Now, if we find all inclined beds in one or the other of these positions, we have a right to conclude that they have been uplifted by the same causes. Faults. When a crack is made, it often happens that one of the parts of the soil is more elevated than the other, no matter whether the crack remains open or not. These effects are often observed, and it is presumed they are all produced by the same cause, namely, upheaval. The beds are then inclined in opposite directions, and one of the parts is more elevated than that which is adjacent. The junction is sometimes distinguished by subterraneous work, either subsequently filled with gravel, or a slight fissure, or at least by a surface of separation, the planes of which are smooth and sometimes polished or striated vertically, showing a close crack and a rubbing of one part on the other. This arrangement has been called fault, from the German full, an accident, fall or sinking, because one part is lower than the other. Faults are observed in every kind of soil, and present crests or ridges extending over great spaces nearly in a straight line, sometimes broken here and there, but the different parts preserve the same direction. Besides showing themselves on the surface, faults are also perceived underground by the disturbance they have caused in beds or veins worked for the benefit of the arts. It is thus, for example, in coal measures, the same bed of coal is found so much deranged in its position that the miner, after having worked on a part of its direction, finds it suddenly end and would at once abandon all his labours had not experience taught him that, by following the fault, he will find the deposit either above or below the point where it abruptly terminated. Sometimes there results from these disturbances serious mistakes for speculators. Observing various outcrops on the surface of the ground, they have inferred the existence of as many different beds and consequently great wealth, when, in reality, it was only one and the same bed dislocated and raised up to different levels by successive faults. Crate Reform Disposition The known formation of Monte Nuovo, in explaining to us the uplifting of the beds seen in its crateriform cavity, 
leads us to attribute also to upheavals, the epochs of which are unknown, the structure of several other hillocks of the same country, such as those of the Solfatara, of Perzuoli, of Camboldi, of Astroni, etc., where the strata are all raised towards the axis of the excavation found in the centre. In these hillocks, the bottom of the cavity, particularly at Astroni, presents the point of a trachytic dome, which doubtlessly caused the elevation of the surrounding beds of pumice tufa. These crater hillocks at once explain all those of the Champs-Valgren, which are full at the top, but all the strata of which are raised around the axis. Probably there would be found at their base some point of a cone which had not been uplifted with sufficient force to crack the summit. When strata are inclined in opposite directions, like the two sides of a roof, they form what is termed an anticlinal axis, but when they dip oppositely, it is termed a synclinal axis. Similar circumstances are observed in many places, on a greater scale. At Cantel and Monte Dore, basaltic and trachytic beds, which could only have been deposited on a horizontal plane, are found raised up around one or more centres, leaving towards their point of convergence a crateriform basin of more or less extent, or rising around a more or less projecting trachytic dome, like the peak of Tenerife above the escarpments surrounding it. Granitic masses are found under similar circumstances, in the midst of which rise hillocks of basalt or scoriae, which doubtlessly followed the first explosion, as at Monte Nuovo and the island of St. George. Calcareous countries are not more exempt from these accidents than others. Only the crate reform cavities in place of being nearly circular are more frequently elliptical, sometimes very much elongated, as seen in the Jura Mountains. In general, the length is produced like cracks extending to a great distance and forming along its direction elongated hillocks in a line with each other, offering here and there more projecting summits. These summits are most frequently rent and present what are termed closed valleys and valleys of elevation, which are in fact craters of elevation. Ruptures of calcareous mountains do not always present the crate reform uniformity just indicated, but vary much in this respect. One side of the rupture sometimes remains low, while the other is elevated. Sometimes the superior beds seem to have retired horizontally, and the inferior strata are arched up between the fractured extremities. Often, among the upheaved beds, 
some are found which are easily disintegrated, and their projection soon tumbles, inducing the fall of solid strata. From this we have ridges of rock parallel to each other, separated by little valleys, in which the rainwater flows and they become covered by vegetation. Sometimes the summit only presents a mass of calcareous blocks piled one on the other, but arranged in a line as if the work of a mason. Again, when two parallel upheavals take place, it sometimes happens that one portion of the formation is cut off, and then forms the culminating point of the whole mass, giving the appearance of a repetition of certain strata in the same deposit. The central part of the uplifted mass is formed of matters sometimes analogous to those that essentially constitute the formation and sometimes totally different. Upheaval and distortion without dislocation. The uplifting of strata is often accompanied by ruptures, but frequently there is no apparent dislocation. We have already noticed the isolated mounts or hillocks on the Champs-Valgrain, and the same is also seen for greater or less lengths, which then have more or less projecting sides or anticlinal lines formed by the uplifted strata on either side, like the dip of a roof. These effects are similar to those produced by crevices, but acting on strata of a certain degree of flexibility. The Jura Mountains present a number of instances of this. We often see there different parallel ridges of this kind, clearly marked on the simplest maps, which leave between them valleys of greater or less breadth, on the two slopes of which the beds are uplifted. The result is great undulations in the strata, remarked especially in escarpments, produced by different ruptures, which cut the ridges in a great many places. These undulations on a grand scale are not interrupted except by great reform ruptures of summits previously spoken of. Plating or folding of schistose strata. Distortions are also observed under other circumstances, in which it seems that beds of a degree of flexibility, or in a pasty condition, have been compressed by two opposing forces rather than uplifted. Certain facts observed in matter of the structure of schist naturally lead to this idea. It often happens that the laminae of these deposits, instead of continuing on the same plane, horizontal or inclined, are all found very much contorted without creasing to be parallel or folded on themselves into a more or less acute zigzag. The supposition as to the mode in which this plating has been affected has been verified by experiments made by Sir James Hall. 
entirely similar circumstances occur in coal measures. All the strata of these deposits, both argillaceous and combustible, are found plated and often at acute angles. This is especially remarkable in the coal measures near Mons in Belgium. Now, how did these compressions take place? In a degree, an explanation is required for each locality, but we know that in a deposit of inclined strata, the mass of which is pushed from below upwards, the superior part presses with all its weight on the inferior, and the beds of the latter, being placed between two opposing forces, may fold on themselves if they are sufficiently flexible. On the other hand, as matters in a state of fusion are often injected with great force into sedimentary deposits, it is conceived that from this results the lateral compression which produces the same effects. Origin of Valleys If mountains are only the result of dislocations which have taken place on the surface of the globe by the force of internal agents, there would be no difficulty in accounting for valleys. The first idea of the origin of valleys was based on excavation by the erosive action of water. But then mountains having been previously formed, it is clear that water would always follow the natural slope of the soil, and only excavate in that direction. When arrested by any obstacle, or in a basin, it would of preference cut through deposits of sand and gravel. We see the contrary of this natural action. Valleys do not generally follow the real slope of the soil. It is not by the lowest part of basins that waters are generally turned, nor through movable formations that they make their passage. Rivers, in place of having excavated their beds, as was thought, are simply directed by the canals they found already made. Now it is not difficult to go back to the origin of these canals. They are evidently the result of upheavals, which have embossed or ridged the soil, until then horizontal. It is clear the inflexible beds must have been broken, and consequently a number of cracks were formed. The cracks became valleys, placed in different relations to each other according to circumstances of upheaval. Parallel if the action, taking place in a certain direction, extended a sufficient length, divergent if the action occurred at one point, as in certain massive mountains, often perpendicular to the direction of uplifted chains, as the secondary cracks manifested during earthquakes, which occurs especially when the internal action forces crystalline matter through the principal crack. It may be easily conceived that crevices would remain more open in solid matters than in arenaceous deposits, the falling of which would tend to fill the vacancy. And this is the reason 
why rivers seemed to shun movable formations, which they could easily excavate if they had not found a bed ready prepared in another direction. It must not be concluded, however, that water has no agency in the configuration of valleys. On the contrary, we must believe that when a country has been suddenly rent, causing the accumulated waters to flow all at once, that torrents of frightful power were produced, tearing away and removing all parts fractured by upheaval, and they thus modified the passages offered to them. It is probable, also, that certain valleys which pass through a movable formation, little disposed to fracture, have been produced exclusively by water. Valleys referable to this origin are very different in character from the first. They follow the natural line of slope. They change their course on meeting masses which offer resistance and turn round them to remain constantly in the movable deposits. Such are the valleys which cut through the great deposits of rolled flints found at the foot of the Oriental Alps. Many great rivers have themselves cut their beds in an ancient alluvium, very different from that now forming. The Seine, at Paris, excavated its bed in a deposit of rolled flints very unlike the gravel it now deposits. Valleys from disruption are those which have been produced by cracks of every size, sometimes colossal, during the upheavals that have brought the land to its present configuration of surface. They generally present abrupt escarpments in which are seen the section of the fractured strata. The projecting angles on one side often corresponding with the retreating angles of the other. The circles which frequently terminate them above, or those that divide them in their length, are so many craters of elevation, most of which are clearly characterized either by the uplifted strata or the barrancos they present. Valleys of subsidence are also spoken of, but it does not appear there are any arising purely from this cause. Subsidence is frequently correlative to upheaval, and valleys as well as craters of elevation may exhibit the effects of both, which must have taken place especially in the circles found along their line and at their superior extremity. Valleys from folding or plating are produced by two neighbouring upheavals, causing the elevation of strata and leaving a space between, the slopes of which being formed by their plains. This is seen in the high parts of the Jura. Many rivers flow in valleys resulting from two opposite uptiltings of the soil. Valleys of erosion or denudation are produced in loose formations like ravines, made by rainstorms, the waters of which carry off the materials constituting the soil. The origin of caverns 
is one of the phenomena attributed to the action of water, but, although we find on a level with the sea some caverns of slight depth, which may have arisen from the repeated action of waves, it is difficult to believe that great caves, which are sometimes many leagues in extent, have been produced solely by the action of the waters running through them. The action of water on compact limestone, in which caves are principally found, is so slight that it has been supposed the open spaces now found were at one time filled by masses of salt, which the waters had subsequently dissolved and carried away. It is presumed, however, that the first origin of caverns is due to cracks, produced in the interior of the soil, which have been afterwards modified by different causes. We know, in fact, that during earthquakes, rivers as well as lakes suddenly disappear underground, sometimes temporarily and sometimes continuously. It is conceived that the water flows through internal cracks, similar to those produced on the surface, which form canals for its passage. The phenomenon is sometimes coincident with the appearance of some abundant spring in a more or less distant place, but it often happens also that the water nowhere reappears, and we must conclude that it runs directly into the sea. All these circumstances explain the disappearance of certain rivers, which are swallowed by the earth after a superficial course of more or less extent, as well as the sudden appearance of springs gushing from the side of a rock. They point to the existence of subterraneous canals, and lead us to think that, dried up by a more or less considerable upheaval, these canals may have formed the now empty caverns found at all heights, as well as those, the bottom of which are still occupied by a stream of water fed from lakes or rivers on the surface. Still, if the real origin of most of these subterraneous cavities be not doubtful, it must be admitted that subsequently important changes took place in the general form and condition of their parieties. The rounded form, wear and polish of surfaces, grooves, different excoriations, and in all positions, even on the upper part of the vault, an erosive action of which water alone is incapable. It has been thought this liquid might have been charged with carbonic acid gas, which is frequently disengaged from the earth through fissures formed in it, particularly at the time of earthquakes, and that the subsequent effects were owing to its dissolving power. End of Lesson 8, Part 2